I was struck through a couple of the songs that we were singing this morning and just thinking about how poised our world is to see the strength of God show up on display because we are so scrambled. And, um, you know, whether you're following the news closely, there's some events in the last week you can't miss, even if you're not trying to follow it. But, um, you know, the strength of God is being um, ushered in, if you will, by human weakness and frailty and what seems to be the free movement of uh, Satan himself as he seeks to steer and direct this world in the way in which he it, it would go. And he only does that to make the weak attempt to defeat his ultimate enemy, who is our Savior. And so we represent him. We represent our Savior, therefore making us pawns in that battle. And so as we cry out to the Lord for strength and as we join together in worship this morning, it's just one of those things where I'm, I'm wondering how much we recognize how important our faithfulness is to the Lord in this time. It's probably a pretty simplistic and cliche statement to share, but as you see these events unfolding, as you hear everything that's going on, how much of the weight of representing or ushering in the strength of God do you put on your own shoulders to say, now maybe is our time as a church to put on display for a crumbling world how strong our God really is? If we are continually trapped in weakness and failure, um, it doesn't demonstrate the strength of that God. Um, I, I want to, it really isn't anything in my, there's no um, introduction in my sermon that sounds anything like what I just said. So I'll try to switch gears a little bit here, but I think it's all related nonetheless. Um, I want to speak to us just for a moment about our shopping habits. Now, I know I go over global terrorism and heavy issues and they're like, let's talk about what's in your grocery cart. That's my head for you. So, um, but our, our shopping habits have evolved. If you want to know what's going on in a culture, you know, figure out the things they buy and, and actually figure out the way that we buy things. You know, probably mostly in the 90s and then into the 2000s, bundle offers were all the rage. And then it started to become this thing. As, as much as you could get under one umbrella, the better. The, as much as you could get in one package for one low price of 14.99 or something like that, the, that was the rage. Bundle offers were the way to go. Our phone companies and, and cable companies started picking up on that. And they said, okay, we're going to give you your TV, your internet, and we're going to wash your dog for you. And we're going to do it all for the low price of $59.99 a month. And then um, as you go into this giant facility here, you're going to be able to buy the, the food for that dog. And you're also going to be able to buy new wheels for your tractor over here. And then if you need, uh, I don't know, anything else, it's over there, you know, socks in aisle four. And so bundle became the thing. Everyone wanted to get everything under the same roof. Uh, we wanted the biggest bang for our buck. So as much as you could put in the same package, the better. And then things started to evolve. Lately, I don't know if you've noticed, maybe this is an app culture thing. But now we're starting to get much more selective. We don't want to pay for the whole thing and get all this useless stuff that we don't need. See, we were impressed back in the 80s that if we bought a cable package, we could get 476 channels. For 19.99 a month, that was the coolest thing. We would go around and brag about how many channels did you get for that for that much money. Oh, I got so much more than you. And then we realized, as we all do, we probably have three or four channels that we even like and watch. Right? All the other ones are a waste of time to flip through to find the thing you want to watch. And it actually is kind of entertaining to find out how much you don't need that stuff. 
You know, you keep going through and you're going, okay, that's useless, useless, useless. And before you know it, you've killed an hour. You've been entertained because you have all these channels you don't need. And so now the rumor is, is that eventually our cable and satellite packages and everything will start to become more a la carte where you can pay for ESPN if you like that. You can pay for your news channel if you like that. If you want that show that has left-handed carpenters that wear plaid overalls, you can get that one reality show. You know it's where it's going, right? I'm cutting edge. I'm trendy. I should be a producer of TV because that's the next wave. You can't get any more specific in reality television than that. So that's what's coming. So if you just want that channel, you're going to buy just that. So culture is starting to realize that we want what we want and only what we want. Don't give me any more than that. And that's fine. That's you know, maybe how consumerism's going and the smarter people stay ahead of it and then they make their fortunes and all that kind of stuff. But the issue that we have is to evaluate how much, and this has always been the, the case, how much has consumerism moved into the church and how much has that mindset caused us as believers to approach the Lord with the things that he wants us to do. And I don't know that it's necessarily dependent on the decades or anything, but I think if you're like me, um, you know, when you first became a Christian, when you first surrendered to the Lord, the bundle offer was what you got into it for. I needed a complete rescuing of my entire life. I needed my, my mind arrested by the thoughts of the Lord. I needed my soul saved from the pits of hell. I needed my body redirected so I wasn't using it as an instrument of sin and unrighteousness, as Paul would say in Romans. I needed everything that salvation promised to offer me, and I couldn't believe I was going to get it in one place at the foot of the cross. And because of that, this, this bundle, if you will, and I, and I hate to use these like really crass terms to explain such a great gift, but but hopefully you're, you're following me here. This bundle offering was very welcome to me. In fact, I wouldn't have understood it for anything less. Yet what happens is the longer I go in my Christian life, the more I start to evaluate parts of the bundle that I'm not quite okay with, or I find a little bit inconvenient or a little bit troubling, or it starts to challenge me a little too much. And so I start moving into a la carte Christian mode. And I say, I liked it when God used me for this. I liked it when he put that on my plate and he gave me all these things. But these other channels, I don't really need those. But as we study the scriptures, as we watch what happens in the evolution, if you will, of the church and everything and how the Lord's been moving over the centuries is he doesn't start picking and choosing what his righteousness or his perfection or his holiness demand. It's, it's all one bundle. Well, I'm going to ask you to just kind of park that for a second because we're going to, as quickly as we can, this is, by the way, I, I failed to mention at the outset, this is advanced Sunday for us. And so at faith, we, uh, once a month, we reduce some of our corporate worship time here by about 15 minutes because we ask our men to stick around at the very end. We, we cut short and then we ask our guys to stick around for a little bit later because we, we want to challenge them uh, with some man-specific topics. I don't, I don't know any other cleaner way or cleaner. <laughs> it's not going there. Um, but it's a way to get your interest, isn't it, guys? Everyone's like, all right, I'm sticking around. For years, I've been blowing this off, but this, this time, honey, wait for me out in the car. I'll be there in 15 minutes, but we're gimmicky here. Remember, Ben wanted to give you t-shirts for getting baptized. I'm luring you in. <laughs> Pastor Bill's got two pink slips he's drawing up right now. <laughs> anyway, advanced Sunday, we ask our guys to stick around, 
and be challenged from the Word of God. So, um, so please do that, guys. Make a plan to stick around and be a part of this. So because of that, this is going to move a little bit quick because this is going to a point that, uh, that we have to reach. But in order to get there, I want us to look at a particular sermon in Acts chapter 2. Um, in Acts chapter 2, about halfway through the chapter, what we find is a, a, um, a supernatural um, chain of events that's happening because prophes- what has been prophesied for the centuries is that the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, would show up in a demonstrable kind of way, in a way that no one would be able to um, doubt or, or no one would be able to miss. And when Acts chapter 2 comes, that demonstration, that arrival has happened. And so now the Holy Spirit is here, and he's showing up in ways, in the very beginning of, of the chapter, what we see is he's showing up in ways that, that um, uh, alter everyone's language. They're speaking in languages that the foreigner over there recognizes, but he says, I know that person doesn't know my language. How are they speaking my language? And this is all happening all over the place. And it's, the, the, the Bible describes it like a, a rushing wind. The Holy Spirit comes moving in, and he infuses the lives of all of the Christ followers so that they have a very demonstrable reaction to the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and no one can miss it. And so Peter, taking advantage of the opportunity, wants to use this movement in an evangelistic way, or simply put, he wants to um, challenge all of the unbelievers there, those who have not received the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, as King of kings and Lord of lords. He wants to take the opportunity to challenge them, to say, this is what's going on, you need to also accept what's happening and make it personal for your life. And so Peter uh, lays out what, what I think is just a brilliant and concise sermon, um, beginning in verse 14. It says that Peter, taking his hand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, For it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And so brilliantly, Peter says, now you've heard these words before. This has been part of your history. They said this day would come. So don't deny what's happening here. And he says that um, as he as he starts quoting Joel right from that prophecy, it says it's going to be this way in the last days that I will pour forth my spirit on all of mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall dream dreams and your old men shall dream uh, dreams and visions. Uh, even uh, on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Joel said this was going to happen. So Peter is referencing someone they know and trust. He continues in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It's a quite honestly, it's a statement I have not really thought about much until I came across it this week, looking at this passage all over again. Think about the the wonder and the strength of God in that statement. It was impossible for him to be held in death's power. 
For David says of him, he says, now I've, I've already dropped Joel on you. Can't argue with Joel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to up it and, and talk about right from the words of your king, King David. He says, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he was at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. And here's the prophecy coming. He says, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your holy one to undergo, undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter, continuing in his sermon, says this about that passage. He says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we were all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, this is David's quote now, the Lord said to my Lord, David's not saying the Lord said to me, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What I love about Peter's sermon, and it's not quite done yet here, is that it's so Christ-exalting. It, it, it seeks and it aims to, um, to promote the deity and the kingship of Jesus Christ, the one from Nazareth who most of them had, had, uh, had denied. And so the, the, the movement of the Holy Spirit, like a rushing wind, comes in to give credit and authority to those that were claiming to follow this one-off Messiah wannabe from Nazareth. And so no other uh, claiming to have uh, the sonship of God, no other claiming to have the power from God that Jesus did was able to back it up with, with one, a resurrection that was seen by so many people, and then two, the arrival of the Holy Spirit given freely to all of those who claim the name of Christ. So Peter is delivering for us and for his listeners at the time a brilliant sermon that says you have something to deal with now. You can't just say, well, that was a good show in the town square. Wasn't that freaky? All these people were talking and all this sort of stuff. That was really entertaining. What's next? You have something to deal with here because you've just witnessed the arrival of everything that the Nazarene said would happen. And so now that the comforter that he said would come if he got out of the way, in a sense, if he he says, I have to leave so the comforter can come and be with you all personally... So now that that's happened, you, I am confronting you with a decision, with a response. Good gospel preaching sets at its aim the deity and the kingship of Jesus. And that's exactly what Peter is doing. He's reminding everybody, or maybe even instructing them for the first time even, that this gospel that is coming, this good news is coming, is really a bundle offering. This is going to shake the foundation and the core of all of the witnesses. 
So what is the result of such a powerful sermon? What, how do you follow that up? He gets you to the point of saying, you see all this going on? Now you've got to do something with it. So naturally, there is a lot of people who are really shaken, who are really disturbed, who thought they just ran into a bunch of drunk uh, revelers. Instead, he says, that's not what's going on. There are people that are really nervous about what they see, and so they're waiting. What do I do with this? Now you've got our attention, Peter. You gave us Joel. You gave us David. You're giving us all this truth. Now what do we do? And what does he say? How does he tell them to respond? In verse 37, he says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what are we supposed to do? So Peter said to them, give the church more money. Or Peter said to them, show up on an occasional Sunday and punch the card. Or Peter said to them, help the old lady across the street. Or Peter said to them, all the things that we have tried to accomplish right in our lives, in our religious duties that have left us empty, he didn't say any of those things. Peter said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, repentance is a word. We've mentioned it already this morning. We've prayed about, Lord, give us a heart of repentance as a church and as a nation. We know that as we see what's going wrong with our country, we continue to, to quote that if a nation would just turn to God and repent from their sins, then he would hear our cry and he would heal our land. We use that word a lot that it's almost become kind of a churchy sort of thing to where those of us that come here often and we hear that, we go, okay, repentance, all right. But I, I, I confess to you that I'm just as guilty so often of not really holding weight to the word repentance, where I think it really comes across as, I'm sorry, and that's repentance. You know, it's the kind of thing, the kind of discussion I might have with my wife or one of my coworkers or something, if I've done something wrong, I'm sorry. And then as long as I say it, I've got it off my chest and I feel better and I can wash my hands of it. And I go, okay, I did my part. I did the I'm sorry's. And then I walk away. And for some reason, the lingering effects of that continue to follow me. And they haunt me a little bit because I haven't really repented. I might have confessed. I might have come to you and said, I'm sorry that I stepped on your toe when you were coming into church. And I really did it on purpose. And I don't know what was going through my mind, but I did it. And I, and I say, I'm sorry. And I walk away. Your toe's still throbbing. And I haven't offered to make any kind of restitution. And the other thing that I've failed to do in my lack of repentance is I haven't made a commitment to you that the next time I see you coming, I'm going to stay about two or three paces away from you so that I don't even come close to tripping on your toe again. Now, obviously, in this silly example, hopefully we're seeing some of the mechanics of what repentance is because repentance is, is changing your mind from the thing that you are fixated on or the thing that you are doing and saying, I've got to move in the opposite direction and do the opposite thing. So instead of just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for stepping on your toe, what I need to do is also offer a solution to, in my attempts to never do that again. I may do it again. Because I didn't just say I'm sorry and got perfect. But I, I said, I am looking to make restitution to move away from that practice. And so Peter is just dropping a word on a culture that was probably very familiar with this practice. There was all this instruction all along of atoning for your sins and all of this ritual and everything. And, and a lot of this atonement and a lot of these rituals really cost them something. And so when something happened and they had to make 
restitution or they had to try to pay for it, it really sunk in their core going, I don't really want to be guilty of this again. I'm running out of lambs. I'm running out of livestock. I'm running out of stuff that's like every time I screw this up, I got to go to something that really costs me something and present it in order to be seen as clean. Now, culturally speaking, that doesn't hurt us that way anymore. Because I think in America, what still hurts us the most is what comes out of our wallet. But you see, we don't have to necessarily pay in a restitutionary kind of way for the offenses that we do against God and his people or against other people. We don't sit there and say, okay, if you've done this, this, and this, you're going to recite this and this, and uh, I want you to throw this kind of uh, money in the giving box on your way out and everything. We're operating in an economy of grace in this day and age since Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And so it doesn't have a, a, a tendency too often to hit us in the wallet. Now, husbands... Some of your faults have hit you in the wallet before, haven't they? Who's the ro- who are the roses for, you know? I don't know. Even if I've ever gone to the, I was almost going to say the grocery store to buy my roses. I just confessed. That's where I go. Um, you know, I, if I run into somebody I know or somebody's just feeling chatty or something like that, they're like, what'd you do? That's the expectation, right? You must have done something wrong because you're you're doing this kind of thing. Um, but But in reality... Our failures don't necessarily cost us in those ways. Now, some of you have gone through marriage strife. Some of you have gone through divorce and said, oh, wait a second. Let me tell you, it does cost you something. And I understand that. There's a very real cost to a lot of things. But in terms of an immediate sting and relating, you know, it's just a delayed reaction for us these days. We don't often do the, the introspection or take the inventory to say, what was my sin that ended up costing me all of this down the road? But in these days, to, to the listeners that Peter had, they understood what was going on here. They understood that uh, if I follow the Nazarene, if I, if I start walking towards, as we're going to see here, as I start walking towards the waters of repentance, then I know this is going to cost me something. I'm not going home to my same existence. I'm not going home to my same friends. This is going to start costing me something. So Peter is saying the very first thing I want you to do if you're ready to respond to this message is to turn your thinking 180 degrees, repent of your sins and commit to Jesus of Nazareth that I will now live differently and I'll leave these sins behind me. It's a turning away from one conscious thought or activity to the exact opposite. We also see the same exact theme central to John the Baptist preaching as he's talking about. It. He says, repent of your sins and be baptized. And, and then eventually the Pharisees come along and these are all the, the religious clean looking guys, the, the powerful ones of the society. And they come to observe and to see what this John the Baptist is doing and everything. And he calls them right out and says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you that the end was coming? What are you doing here? So he said, I want you to get out of here and show fruits of repentance. He knew that all of their religious duty and all the things that they were doing so perfectly and cleanly weren't the opposite of their sinful thoughts. They weren't the opposite of their sinful motivations. Instead, they were using those religious outward trappings uh, as manipulations of those desires for power and prestige and and prominence, and any other P words that we can come up with here. You're right, Ben, this crowd's dead this morning. I just threw some alliteration at you. All right, I just need some 
Was it alliteration? All right. I got a C in that class, so I just wanted to make sure. I, I'm thinking. Uh, I'm just. I'm thinking of John the Baptist, and as he's talking about, and, and Peter as well, when they're talking about being baptized, and we'll get into this in just a second here. And he's talking about how uh, to show those fruits of repentance and and uh, to to do it as an act of the will and obedience and everything. I don't know if you've seen the the movie. You can. You don't have to admit if you if you have. Um, we went Bill and Ted earlier this morning, so I'm going to go Nacho Libre on you. And uh, and uh, Nacho Libre is, you know, he's a, d- a devout Catholic type guy and everything. And I think a monk of some sorts and everything. And he's got a friend who's an unbeliever. And um, he claims, I don't believe in God. I believe in science, you know, and stuff. And so Nacho's all concerned about him. He goes, I'm concerned about your salvation and stuff. And so he's like, how come you've never been baptized? And he says, you know, I believe in science and all that stuff. So Nacho finds an opportunity when his friend happens to be by like a a horse drinking tank or something like that and runs by and throws his head in the water like he baptized him, you know. And and so we look at that. We're like, okay, clearly it wasn't the guy's will to get dunked. He had still gone in that water, a firm believer in science and not in uh, the miracles of God. And so, uh, you know, it really doesn't do anything for you to just get baptized in that sense. So what Peter is saying here is he says, I want you to repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So this is where we're going this morning. This is where we have to kind of wrap things up here is that the reaction to being encountered with the power of Jesus Christ is for you and me to repent of our sins and then to follow in obedience to the commands that Jesus Christ has given us. And in this instance and in this moment, Peter says it's repent and go into the water and be baptized. And, and this has lost so much significance the further we get away from that kind of culture, because I don't know, if you think about it, you go, what is the point? You're walking in. I, I swim, you know. I took a shower. It's not like I'm opposed to getting wet. Why do you need me to be baptized? It doesn't make any sense. And, uh, and really, um, what we do is we make available for those that are interested in finding out what is baptism about and what do we need to know about and everything. Uh, we put a, an order of biblical instruction that talks about the mode of baptism, why it's important, uh, that it involves water and why we believe that it means uh, immersion and everything, and um, also the reasons why we are even baptized. If you think about the picture, and this is, and, and this is uh, what we find from the scriptures, is that as we go into the water, even Romans says that we are buried it, with Christ in our baptism. And then as we come out of the water, we are raised symbolically in the new life of Jesus Christ, just as he went into the grave and then rose again after three days. And so we need, because we are physical people, we need physical milestones, if you will. We need physical um, uh, um, checkpoints in our life that show this is the growth of where God is bringing me. And so baptism is this outward picture of what's already starting to happen inside the heart. And there aren't a lot of opportunities for that to happen early on in the life of the believer because we're still trying to figure it all out and everything. And so what happens is as we move forward into the waters of baptism, we are making a public statement for those watching 
that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only do we just mentally assent to it, but we are following in practice. We are moving into those same waters to identify with it. Extremely powerful in Peter's day. Extremely powerful in John the Baptist's day. Because like I said, you start even inching towards those waters and everyone's like, oh, no, he isn't. He's not going to get... No, she didn't. Is she going to... Really, she's going to walk away from her family because of this? Are you serious? Has anybody tested this out yet? What's going on? You even think some people would get in that line of John the Baptist trying to look and see what happens and all of a sudden they'd start chickening out and just be like, eh... I think I'm going to wait. Well, it's kind of too late because you had so many witnesses around and everything. They'd be like, hey, I saw you in line the other day. Did you go through with that? No, I just decided it wasn't for me. Well, why are you even thinking about that? There was just this public acknowledgement that you have moved forward in your, in your um, acknowledgement that, that you believe that this Nazarene was really the Messiah. So what's the point of all of this? The point of all of this isn't to drum up more numbers for baptism. Uh, the point of all this isn't so that we have this big celebration or successful day. We believe that if one person's ready for baptism and we know that those people are already on the list, then we're going to have a great day no matter what. Here's the reason why I've, I've started with Peter's sermon and just kind of gone in this area is because I believe what happens so much in faith today, both in this church and just in the church universal, is that we have decided the parts of salvation that we like and we have picked and choose a la carte style of what we're going to obey and what we're going to do next instead of saying no when i walked into this i knew i was getting a bundle offer i know that jesus was going to challenge me in all areas of life i knew that he was going to save not just my my um my relationships and how i speak to people but he was also going to challenge me on my checkbook he was going to swirl the whole thing in and his biblical principles are going to are undergird all that i'm going to learn and so for some reason baptism becomes this sticking point in our culture that we can have people that are moving along in their faith for years or even thinking they're moving along in their faith for years and if for some reason just said i'm not really into that maybe it looks silly maybe it's you know having to give my testimony or it's whatever the case may be and i'm trying to challenge that thinking this morning to say why where ha- when have we come to the place that we could look at the whole bundle offer and say, all right, I'm going to start picking and choosing. I know you have provided this, but I only wanted this and this. You know, what's interesting about baptism is just because you get baptized doesn't guarantee that you're going to become super Christian. You know, people that we, we tell this to people that are going through the process all the time. You're just getting dipped in a lake. <laughs> and we're going to pull you out and you're going to have lake water running off you. You know, you're not going to hear the sound of choir angels going on, any of those kinds of things. You know, have any of you witnessed a glow around somebody coming out of the lake? We haven't. It's, it's called milfoil weed or whatever it is. You know, it's uh, whatever's going on in that lake over there and stuff. What is happening is all symbolic. It is a picture. It is an image. But for the person getting baptized, it is the step of releasing more of their will over to the Lord Jesus Christ which can only enhance your walk with him. Holding back from baptism stifles growth because you're not giving all to your Savior. Going into the murky, weedy, 
lake waters at Mesolonsky, uh, for some reason, starts to move your Christian life forward because it represents you letting go of your flesh, letting go of yourself in order to give more of your life to the one who has saved you. So I hope you hear that challenge this morning. Um, we get lots of questions about ages and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I wish I had more time to, to deal with a lot of these things. I just want to say that um, we are really looking forward to preparing for our baptism service on August 28th. What we're hoping that you do is really do business with the Lord, even this morning, and, and try to figure out, Lord, why am I holding this back from you? Why have I never gone forward with this? If the Bible teaches that I do this after I believe, what am I waiting for? Um, if your young ones in the house are, are um, struggling with that or as my kids would be and anybody's kids would be, once you know Jesus, you want to just kind of like, oh, I want to get baptized and everything and stuff. We, we have a tendency to really drag that conversation out at home. Um, I think uh, it's been great in our house that I haven't even had um, kids ask me to be baptized until they were 14, 15 years old. Um, and I don't remember specifically telling them, don't ask me when you're 11 or 12. It's too soon. But I do firmly believe that. It's the counsel of the leadership here at Faith too that, that um, baptism in American culture today is a representation that you know what the cost is going to be, and so therefore you're ready to move forward into that cost. And in my experience, having gone through this a few times under my roof, is that 10, 11, 12, all my kids love Jesus. 13, 14, 15, they have to start wrestling with what that really means. And so I want my kids to experience that weight and that battle a little bit before they just do something symbolically um, because they love Jesus when they're in BBS and when they're in, that's great. That's that formative time for them. But uh, there's nothing wrong with asking a kid who's been maybe a Christian for years and knows all the answers. Um, It's not really about knowing the answers. It's uh, the surrender there knowing that that cost is awaiting them. And so we find typically that that happens in the later teen years as they're starting to think about what kind of an adult they're going to be. So uh, that's our encouragement to you. That's probably the same response that we're going to give you. I think maybe two or three times in the history of baptisms at faith have we baptized children. Uh, It's just not something that we uh, prefer to do. Um, But anyway... Time has run out on me, and Mr. Dion's looking at me like, you're going to give me a a moment here with the guys or what? I'm going to ask everyone to stand if you would. Um, Just a reminder, like um, Pastor Ben said, that there is a sign-up sheet out in the entryway, um, and we have a whole process that we've got to start now, so the sooner we hear from you, uh, the easier that process will be for baptism. So thank you for your attention this morning. Lord God, we want to thank you for calling us into the waters of forgiveness and repentance. Lord, I pray that as we do these things, we are committing to be faithful to you, Lord, knowing that it's only your strength that will keep us faithful. Lord, that our commitments are so frivolous. We say we're going to do something one day and we fail the next. God, it's only by your grace that we will stay in the fight. It's only by your grace that we'll stay in the faith. So, Lord, thank you for giving us that grace, providing us a salvation that's more secure than anything that we could do to unravel it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Men, if you would.